If you would go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Father, as we open your word now, we ask that <clears throat> your word would have a, a profound and a powerful impact on our life. We pray, Lord, that we would become different people. And Father, for those who are changing and becoming more like Christ, we ask, Lord, that would continue. Father, for those who are resistant to change, we pray that, Father, your word would soften their heart and melt their heart. Or break their heart if necessary, that, Father, that we, they may become as Christ. We know, Lord, from your word, that the more that we become like Christ, the greater sense of contentment that we will have. That we will experience a greater sense of peace. That we will have more love in our heart for others. We'll have more compassion. We also know, Lord, from your word, that the more that we become like Christ, that we will experience happiness and joy at a much deeper level. And so we ask, Lord, that you would perform this in us. And that, Lord, that we would be attentive to your word. Again, Father, believing that it is beneficial and profitable for us. And so we do thank you for it, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 4 reads this way. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. As we mentioned last week, Solomon continues to make his observations and again, think and evaluate those things that he's looking at. Remember that the main, the main way he's looking at this is that he's looking at the world, looking at life. He's evaluating it as an individual who is autonomous. He is, he's not depending upon the wisdom of the Lord. He's just looking at this like a man. And as he looks at it and evaluates this just like a man, unaided by anything that God has revealed, what are the conclusions that he comes to? And remember that what he continues to come to, when I read uh, here in the New King James <clears throat> or in the English Anniversary, it says, all that is vanity. Remember that he's not just saying that everything is meaningless. 
In other words, he's not saying that it's meaningless in and of, of itself. What he's really trying to communicate is when he looks at life, it should have meaning, but he can't grasp, grasp what it is. That's what he means when he says that this is all vanity. This is an enigma to him. He, he, there should be something here, and it's, it's not adding up, and he's, he's frustrated by this. And so we have more of that as uh, we began last week looking at this uh, passage here in chapter 4. So in verses 7 and 8, he talks about an individual who is quite alone. But this individual who's alone, he, he works very hard. Um, one might suspect that someone in this predicament, wealth and riches would bring meaning to life. But Solomon doesn't state that they do. Solomon doesn't tell us why this individual is alone. It could be because he is, uh, he's ignored his family, because he's a workaholic. Maybe it's just circumstantial. The person just finds themselves alone and in a very tough situation. But for whatever the reason, work and wealth do not address the problem the individual is experiencing. Then Koheleth launches into this, where he, he begins to give us these proverbs about companionship and that it's better to have somebody with you. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, the others are there to lift him up. Uh, woe to him who is alone when he falls because there's no one there to lift him up. If two lie together, they can keep warm. How could you keep warm if you're alone? And then he says, even though a man might prevail against uh, one who's alone, or there would someone has come against you, they've attacked you. He says, if there are two of you, you will withstand him. And if there's three, basically a threefold, threefold cord is not quickly b- broken. So Solomon here begins to emphasize the value of community. Basically, the practical advantages of companionship. The security that companionship can provide. And so this ends with really, at that time, what was a well-known proverb about a three-stranded cord not being very easily broken. So even though Solomon here recognizes the practical value in the provision of companionship, which brings, again, warmth and security, it doesn't resolve his dilemma. In other words, the dilemma, part of it is, is this man who's alone, he's working really hard. Why is he doing that? Who is it for? He's already mentioned earlier on in Ecclesiastes that, that he's talking about the individual who works hard and then they die. And, and then everything they've worked for, who does it go to? You know, maybe it goes to individuals who didn't work for it. And they might just waste all of it. You know, they might just squander it. You know, so what, what is the reason for all of this? That's, what he's, that's what's always at the back of his mind. Community, again, is better than being in isolation. But it's this individual who's isolated that Koheleth has observed. And so his reflections on community, that again, two is better than one, really intensify uh, this problem that he is recognizing. It doesn't resolve it in any way. Then he continues in verse 13, and he kind of makes some observations about government or politics. Uh, some have tried to, to relate this to maybe different events in his life. Others say, well, it's not really related. I don't think it really matters because the observations would remain unchanged. But again, he talks about this. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So, we ha- so most individuals recognize that you know, when individuals are, are young, um, they don't have a whole lot of wisdom for lots of different reasons. But he mentions this old king who should have wisdom, but he's foolish. And why is he foolish? Well, he's foolish because he no longer takes advice. He no longer knows how to take advice. Then he kind of goes on and says, 
For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. So, again, people are trying to figure out who is he talking about here. Well, I think he's just continuing to elaborate on this poor man, this poor and wise youth. This poor and wise youth, he was for some reason in prison. He could have been there in there for political reasons. He could have been there because he was in debt. He could have been there because he committed a crime. He doesn't say, but he was in prison. Uh, and he, he made the trek from being in prison to being a man who was on a throne. Now, again, in his own kingdom, before all this, he had been poor, as it mentioned before. And then he says in verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. So there's no end of the people. And then he says, but you know, in the end, people come along and they, this, this new king, they don't even appreciate him. We, we kind of know that, uh, you know, when it comes to political popularity, that's extremely fickle. You, know, you, can, you can be on top of the heap uh, one minute and the next day you're just, you're rubbish. Uh, it could be because of your own doing. It could be because of something that's made up. Uh, we know that p- politics uh, p- has a hand almost in everything. It's not just our government. You know, there's, there's politics where you work, probably. Um, Tim mentioned this the other day. I read about this earlier. Uh, but, you know, in, in seminaries and colleges, there's politics. And there are these two liberal seminaries that merged because they weren't doing well economically. So they, they merged. Uh, and the one who's now the head of this combined seminary, is a female. And um, she is uh, really in favor of the whole LGBT, I think that's enough letters, movement. I've heard that someone actually has added a few more. But anyway, uh, she's really very supportive. However, it was discovered that 20 years ago, she was considered anti-gay. Now, you would think they would celebrate that she had you know, come to her senses and that she had suddenly realized that um, this was the, the proper way to go. But that's not what happened. Not only are they upset at individuals today who are anti-gay, they're going to be against you if at one time you were anti-gay. So even though she's all for it now and she changed 20 years ago, not soon enough. And so she, I, I guess she resigned. You know, one of those things where you're kind of forced to quit. So that's what's happened. There's, or they're calling for her resignation. Anyway, she's no longer politically, you know, ha- has the favor of those who are the students. It can just change. It can change for all kinds of reasons. And so this is what he's talking about. And so this, this king, you know, again, he's foolish. He no longer listens to advice. You know, Proverbs stresses the importance of listening. Uh, in First Kings, you have a passage which reads this way. So give your servant an understanding mind and a hearing heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge and rule this your great people? That was the prayer of Solomon, by the, by the way. He wanted wisdom. He wanted to have a hearing heart. The fool is precisely the individual who will not listen. As I, as I said before, Proverbs makes the point several times that a wise leader takes advice. It says in Proverbs 20, verse 18, Make plans by seeking advice. If you wage war, obtain guidance. So again, a king who's no longer open to advice, that's going to be catastrophic for his people. In this scenario, again, Solomon continues. In verse 14, as I mentioned, this guy, this young man had been in prison. And what is clear is there's this sudden rising 
uh, where he, you know, in the realm of politics, this can take place. If you know anything about history, there are several dictators in the past who at one time were imprisoned and then they're leading the country. Uh, and so that type of uh, skyrocketing in politics is not an unknown thing. It's one that's actually very well known. So Koheleth examines four areas that once again make uh, once again show that life is really meaningless, that because of these things he observes, he can't grasp what the meaning is in life. Uh, it makes understanding life really impossible. Again, as I, as I mentioned, he's not saying that there's no meaning there. It's just that he can't really grab onto it. It befuddles him. It eludes him. Now, again, last week, as we covered this, we, we uh, talked about the ongoing problem of oppression. Uh, in fact, if you try to put that in contemporary uh, language, uh, I didn't mention this last time, I'll mention this today. Uh, I believe that uh, on the latest estimates that I've seen, there are approximately 218 million children between the ages of 5 and 17 that are, that are working, meaning this is where they're forced to work. 126 million children today work in hazardous conditions, working in mines, working with hazardous chemicals and pesticides, or working with dangerous machines. Millions of girls work as domestic servants, where they are basically unpaid. You know, they're kind of a slave in the house. There's uh, 5.7 million that are forced into that kind of slavery. Then there's 2 million children that are forced into prostitution. There are, uh, by the latest estimates, 300,000 children that are forced to serve as armed soldiers. And there's about 600,000 that are involved in various types of illicit activities. That's where they're, they're recruited to serve as mules, uh, where they're carrying drugs in, into other places, um, or they're, they're being trained and you have gangs of, of kids that go in places and, and are involved in various types of theft and that kind of thing. You know, there's about 600,000 children worldwide that are recruited and, and basically um, involved in this kind of thing. There's a lot of oppression that goes in the world. It's not a pretty picture. So whether as last week as we looked at serial killers or you're looking at the enslavement of children, it's just, it's just not a nice world. There's just a lot of evil that is taking place. In response to all of this, I do believe that as Christians, we should manifest a deep hunger for justice. This really should bother us. It should make us angry. In fact, it's been one of the hallmarks of Christianity in the past, where you had Christians who would lead various movements to abolish slavery, to abolish child labor. Uh, it is many believers today that are uh, leading the way and trying to find ways to get rid of uh, uh, the sex trafficking trade that goes on throughout the world. Uh, there are those that are trying to deal with it legally, trying to get governments to change their laws and then enforce the laws. There are also groups that go around um, that are in, operating in other countries where they basically kidnap uh, children who have been enslaved in prostitution. They kidnap them uh, and then try to help them escape and, and get them to a place that's safe. Then there's other groups that, um, because of the ongoing dis what I might call the regular slave trade, you know, because that still takes place. There are those who are trying to raise money, and they go into the various countries where they, where they purchase slave labor, whether um, it's in Sudan or, or various places, and what they do is they try to buy their freedom so they can set them free and send them back home. So there's all kinds of, of groups, and, and often uh, they are led by Christians or they were started by believers uh, trying to right these things that are taking place. 
Then we also saw last week how competitiveness can become skewed and driven by self-centeredness. Solomon, again, has pointed out that humans are not made for isolation, as we've read today, but they are made for community, that we've been constituted by God to be in a relationship, to be in a relationship with God and to be in a relationship with other people. Relationship with God, obviously, is primary, but keep in mind that in Genesis chapter 2, when God says that it is not good for man to be alone, man at that time had a relationship with God. So the relationship with God is important, but God has created us so that we would uh, be with each other, and that, that is, that's what's going to bring about our health, physical, mental, intellectual, spiritual, and all the rest. We are made to love each other, and we are made to be loved by each other. Then again, in relation to the whole political realm that we talked about, um, again, he says there's just no end of all the people uh, that are being led, and yet when it speaks of this new king, there will be those who will come later that just aren't going to rejoice. They're not going to like this individual. One has noted that Koheleth is also informing us that even when good is provided, People cannot be relied on to embrace it. This is truly the nature of a fallen world. It is, not that we, it is not that there are not solutions in salvation, but so often humans do not want the good. They do not want salvation. And so when you kind of think about the political realm and how different things go, that's, that's not an untrue statement. If it's, we now live in a society that if it's not packaged the right way, we don't want anything to do with it. It's in general. And sometimes we just see people that are just foolish when it comes to that. One has said this, this is not a new thing, and I don't know who the original person was that ever said this, but when it comes to democratic type uh, types of uh, governments, they've said this, people get the leaders they deserve. And so in our consumer culture, uh, this does not bode well for us. So what do we do with all of this? How do we think about all these things that Solomon is pointing out? Well, one of the basic points is we, is we see that a consuming love of self will not bring one any sense of meaning in life. Being self-centered is not going to give you the ability to discern or to discover the meaning of life. Living life primarily for yourself will lead you probably to oppress others in various ways. And so we must awaken to that fact. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Texas, and he makes a statement as he was going himself through the book of Ecclesiastes. He uh, relayed this to his congregation He said that in his uh, years of counseling with young girls, he said he's never had a girl come into his office in tears and tell him that she hates her dad because he used to drop her off at school in a loud, beat-up old Ford. He's never had one say that that was just so embarrassing she's never been able to forgive him. He said he's never had a young girl tell him that she hates her dad because he didn't buy her a pony or that she hates her dad because he didn't send her on the school skiing trip. But he does say that he's met plenty of young women whose dad had a $60,000 car and maybe could have paid for the entire school to go on the skiing trip. And yet these women have not known the love of their father. And that's where the problem comes in. They have not been given a thoroughly, uh, they've been given a thoroughly warped perception of their own value because their dad didn't love them the way that he should have loved them and they didn't know that their dad loved him. For Koheleth, the value of life is not in what you earn, but it's whom you relate to and the way you relate to them. It is not what you buy, but it is what you give. So the general principle of life is a life that is lived in the community, and mutual interdependence is better all around for everyone. 
it should be we and not me. It's, it's always going to be better for me than only me. So if it's we, it's better for me than if it's only me, because if it's only me, then it's not going to be good for me. So this is how God has designed you and me to flourish. Solomon has observed life, so we should observe and evaluate our own life. Don't hate your neighbor. Don't be too lazy to help them. Don't be too powerful uh, to avoid them. Don't be too strong to oppress them. Don't be so caught up in your own today that you cannot see theirs tomorrow, their tomorrow. Remember that laziness, frenzy, envy, and love of money will each end in its own way. Each in its own way is going to corrode you and I from the inside out. But as we kind of work our way through Ecclesiastes, maybe kind of keeping in the back of your mind the book of Proverbs because it's written by the same man, I do want to make sure that we grasp a very important distinction. We have to do our own observation about life and recognize this. It is possible for you and I to help an alcoholic get sober. It is possible for you and I to help an abusive husband to be considerate and caring. It is possible for you and I to help a compulsive gambler to quit. It is possible to help a person who's driven to make money at the expense of family to change their priorities. It is possible to help an unhappy person become happy. Because all of this can be done without the special work of grace. We have to, we have to recognize that. All those things can be done apart from God. Many individuals have stopped drinking and they have no love of God. Many individuals have turned their whole life around where they've changed their priorities and there's been no work of God in their life. Many people can lead happy, relatively moral lives without God. But remember what they cannot obtain is a right standing before the holy God who created the universe. It's not about what just makes people happy in life. It's not just what about makes you and I happy in life. It is what is it, with or without the happiness, that gives us deep meaning in life. Is this life all there is? Is there more to this life? And we have to recognize that, we, that what we don't want to become, because this is what is happening in several places, where a church becomes a place where you can go and get really good moral advice. It's a place where you can come and get good advice so you can be a happier person. And we're not against people becoming happier people. We're not, we're not protesting against that. That's a good thing. But we don't want to become only that. And too often, that's what churches are becoming, and in some cases have become. God is kind of spoken of in a shallow way. We kind of nod our head in his direction. But the good thing, the, the most important thing is to get this advice. We do not want Christianity to be reduced to better living through religion, because sometimes that's what it is. You can have better living through religion. It's a great program, because that doesn't offer really anything different than what some people already have. We are not here just trying to pass on good advice. Now again, we don't want to give bad advice. We do want to give good advice. But we never want to be just that in the way the world sees it. The good advice approach assumes that people possess motivation and ability. That they simply need instruction on how to put, uh, on how to put what they already have to work. And that is untrue. The real situation is that we are sinners 
without hope and without God in the world. We do not have an engineering problem. We have a spiritual one. The spiritual problem is remedied by what God does by grace through faith, not what we do through human wisdom. The Bible tells us to pursue sanctification because without it, we will never see the Lord. So sanctification is not just holy living, meaning that you're moral. It is holy living in that the individual is living in obedience to what God has said. What that includes is that God is first, that God is primary, that we obey what God says, not because it will bring us happiness, though it often will, not because it will go better for us and others, even though that often will take place. We obey what God says because God has given us the command, period, because that is the right thing for us to do. Only sanctification through the blood of Jesus makes us fit to see the Lord. Possessing and living a sanitized life, achieved in part by and through good advice, cannot make us right with God. It cannot impart meaning into one's life. And that's what we need to remember. Because too often an individual says, well, I, I want to go to where you know, I can get good advice on how to be a better parent. And I want to go where I can get good advice on how to have a better marriage. And I want to go to a place where they're going to really you know, motivate me to do a good job at work and to love my boss so I, can, so I can be promoted and have the kind of life that everybody else has to have. And again, in and of themselves, those things are not necessarily wrong. But don't be like what, what Solomon is observing where we have reduced life to only being that. Life is not just about only getting a promotion. Life is not about just only having you know, a better place to live so you can provide a safe place for your children. Again, not everybody can have those things. Many believers throughout the world have never experienced those things and they never will. But there's more to life than just the here and the now. And there's even more to life than just my temporary happiness. I don't know about you, but I want the kind of happiness that goes on and on. I want a very deep-rooted happiness. I want, a, I want a happiness that is not dependent upon my circumstances. That whether my health is good or my health is bad, I want to be happy. Whether I have wealth or I'm living in poverty, I would like to be happy. I'm convinced that I can be happy in any and every single situation that I may end up in. And it's because I know Jesus Christ. I know that my life is sanctified and is being sanctified by him. I've been adopted by him into his family. And as a result of that, not only is my, is my present secure, my future is guaranteed. A future that is truly marvelous in every way. In fact, it is so fabulous that the Bible tells us that your mind can't even conceive of it as to how great it is. It's almost like this. You know, the individual who has never been to Hawaii and they've been to Hawaii or you go there and you see the most beautiful places there are. And in case you didn't know, there are some places like that there. It's marvelous. And some people will say, I've seen pictures, but this is amazing. Because it's just different when you're there. And everyone knows that. You go to different places in our country. You know, when we went a couple years ago, my, I took... A couple of my grandkids and my wife and my daughter we went up to, to Glacier Park up in, in Montana. You know, people talk about the open country and Big Sky and all that, but it's, and I've seen photos, 
And the photos are great and they're accurate, but they're not complete. It's when you're there and you're surrounded by that. It's just, it's just, it's just unique. It's different. It's, it's, it's just makes those photographs just pale. In fact, now when I look at photographs, I don't just say, wow, that photograph is great. I think back to the experience when I was there, to what I heard and to what I could feel, what I could sense when I was there at those moments. And being with the Lord forever is kind of like that, except we need to inject some steroids to kind of blow it up some more. And so we want to make sure, that, number one, for ourselves, that we don't just come to church looking for some good moral advice. Because that's just not going to cut it. We want to make sure that as a body of believers, that we don't want others to come here just for that. We want to make sure that we're coming here for the ultimate reason, that we're coming here to to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to get our lives right with Him, to receive His gift of salvation, so that whether I have been given good or bad advice in the past, whether my life has gone good or bad, even to this moment, I can have that deep sense of happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction and hope because I know who God is. And that's what we want to make sure that we offer. And what that means is, is that we're always going to be a a church, a body of people that is centered on the communication and the living out of the gospel. And in the community that we live in today, that's going to make us mostly unlikable. Because the message that we hold on to and believe to be true is a message which does say some are in and some are out. And we're not in because we're better. We're in because of God's grace. And others can be in too. But they have to come in on his terms. And that's where people more and more begin to draw the line. We don't like those absolutes. We don't, we don't want to be the individual who's unpopular by saying that others are wrong. Sometimes we have no other choice. We have to say that. You're a nice person, but you're wrong. I don't try to say this too often, point blank to people. At certain times you can. But I have on a few occasions said to an individual, we've talked a lot. I like you. You're a good guy. And you're wrong. And when you die, you're going to go to hell. You know, they're, all, they're, they're tracking until the last part, you know. But usually when I get to that point, they already know that's where I'm coming from anyway. So, it, it, you know, they usually don't get mad and throw things. You know, they just say, well, that's your opinion. And then I say, well, we can, we can find out if it's just an opinion. We can be able to look at things. And so my prayer is that, A, we will never become just a place where there's good advice. My prayer is that we will always be able to make the distinction. And that we will not be individuals seeking a sanitized life, but that we'll be seeking sanctification. And that our lives will be pleasing to the Lord, so that when he returns, he will find us Faithful. And remember that when it comes to your friends and your loved ones, if their life is cleaned up, don't be happy if their life is cleaned up. You can be happy to a point, but what they need is Christ. They need salvation, not good behavior. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your incredible patience with us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the the observations and the message that we can glean from the book of Ecclesiastes. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be individuals who will recognize the, the knowledge and the wisdom that is being laid out for us here. 
We also pray, Lord, that you would prevent us from being individuals who are just seeking the good advice from Scripture, though, Lord, Scripture is filled with great advice. But, Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize that even though we could technically take the good advice out and ignore you, it would not bode well for us. And we pray that it would be the desire of our heart, Father, to be those who are being sanctified by your Spirit, to be saved by your grace, because we have embraced and received the gift of the gospel of Christ. And so, Father, we thank you, and we pray, Lord, that you would continue to burn these messages deep into our hearts and minds, that, Father, we may live in a way that pleases you in every way. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.